Hey listeners, it's your host, Alicia. Before you hear our season finale, I just wanted to say thank you for making the launch of Moving Moments a tremendous success. And we're not done. We're busy preparing for season two. So be sure you're following the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to get alerts when the new season drops later this spring. I can't wait for you to hear my conversations with Justin Peck, Michaela DePrince, Judith Jameson, Ashton Edwards, and so many more. Season two is going to be amazing. In the meantime, you can keep up with the show by following us on Instagram at Moving Moments Podcast. And if you haven't listened to the full first season, now's a great time to go back and catch up on what you've previously missed. Thanks again for all of your enthusiasm. I hope you enjoy this inspiring season finale episode with Michael Novak. Critically acclaimed dancer Michael Novak rose to prominence when he became the second artistic director in the history of Paul Taylor Dance Company, being hand-selected by Paul Taylor himself. Michael is working to preserve and expand upon the legacy of his predecessor, while also building a strong community of artists. He looks for performers who have a solid understanding of technique, athleticism, and the ability to face adversity with grace. When you're in the front of the room, you learn a lot about a person's integrity, character, how they overcome struggles. You see them when they're having difficult times. You see them when things are great. You see how they help each other. You really learn a lot from just sitting back and watching. You're listening to Moving Moments, the podcast that explores the dance world's most accomplished and groundbreaking artists. I'm your host, Alicia Graf Mack, Dean and Director of Dance at the Juilliard School. During each episode, you'll hear me talk with some of my closest friends and most trusted colleagues as we sit down to hear about their creative process and how they are changing the dance world on and off the stage. We have so much in common. We both attended Columbia University's School of General Studies, then eventually became directors of large dance institutions. We are kindred spirits. We are. <laughs> That's the shortest version. <laughs> Can we start with where you're from yeah. and how you started dancing? Yeah, so I'm from Rolling Meadows, Illinois, which is a northwest suburb of Chicago. And my parents had... A rule, basically, that I had to have an extracurricular activity after school. It had to be something, whether it was music or dance or sports. And I tried a lot of sports, but nothing was quite right. I was around 10 years old, and there was a dance studio that was nearby. And I don't know where the thought came from, but I thought I might as well try dance, since nothing else seemed to be working that well. And I started in jazz and tap, and... I really enjoyed it. This was enjoyable. It also was something that I seemed to be really good at. And it was similar to gymnastics and karate in the sense that it was me working and getting better, you know, at a physical way of moving. But then there was the creative element to it and there was music. And I think that kind of set me on a path. Amazing. So once that, that bug bit you, yeah. the dance bug, Tell me what you were like as a child once you had dance in your bones. Did you dance at home? Did you dance on the street? I was very introverted 
still am, even though I'm in a position that's very kind of exposed. I think for a long time, I was very actually ashamed of my love for dance as a bullying and because of being a young boy um, and wanting to be a dancer, the stigma that came from that. So I kind of hit it for the first couple of years. Mm -hmm. At the school that I was at, there were three boys and probably 25 to 30 girls. So I loved it, but it felt like it was kind of like my secret a little bit. But as I got older and as I fell more in love with it and as I got involved in theater, that's where I found my community. I found a support system of peers that just loved the art, period. And then I came out about being a dancer and like unapologetically just like owning, like this is what I love to do. And your parents, were they supportive of your they, love for dance and encouraged it? Incredibly supportive. I think they knew there was talent there. Um we were a very creative family. My mom would play musicals all the time. My dad is an incredible visual artist and illustrator and writer. So kind of the magic of theater was always present and around. One of the, like, actually one of the most transformative things was I was around six years old or six or seven and the national tour of Phantom of the Opera came to Chicago. Oh, wow. And my parents took me to see Phantom and if for, for anyone who's listening and doesn't know the show, there was a moment where this giant chandelier comes crashing down to the stage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're seven, I mean, you think the chandelier is going to fall on you. <laughs> and I remember I'd never seen anything like that before. And like the magic of theater, you go in this building and it's like you're in a different world and mm. things are happening that you you know, you can't explain, you don't know how they work. You don't know how the chandelier fell and candles are coming up from the ground. But that... That moment, I think, for me, was falling in love with what theater can do. I read that at the age of 12, you developed a stutter mm -hmm. that was so severe you were nearly mute. Yep. What caused this and how did you overcome? I still have a stutter. It comes out, um, it comes out more when I'm very stressed, tired, or when I'm speaking other languages. Mm. I've spent years of fluency training and... I don't know kind of where it came from, but it was very, very severe. And at that time in speech pathology, there were not a lot of specialists who focused on stuttering specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and if you had a stutter, you were kind of put into a larger pool of everyone who has a speech mm -hmm. issue. And I was able to find um, a speech pathologist who specialized in stuttering, who happened to live in Illinois and was relatively nearby. And... She worked with me on fluency exercises in addition to the mental impact of having a stutter. Because what was happening is that it was so hard to talk and it was taking so much energy and the words were just getting caught in my throat that I just stopped trying to talk. That must be so traumatic. It was for a young locked. Person. Just I couldn't I couldn't get words out and I couldn't I would know the answers in class, but I wouldn't raise my hand. As that was happening, dance became my outlet because it was where I could express myself and I could dance out my frustrations. I didn't have to think about dancing, whereas I had to think about speech. So it became a way to express myself. That's incredible. And, you know, we always talk about dance as one of the most effective ways to communicate. And thank God you yeah. had that skill and yeah. love. And I think it's why I fell in love with Paul Taylor's work because Paul's work, and we can get there, but there's the emotional range of it and the use of gesture 
And um, the emotional depth was something that just really spoke to me mm. in a way that other styles, other forms did a little bit, but even in musical theater, I loved, I loved jazz, but I didn't want to have to worry about singing or acting because mm -hmm. of yeah. my speech. Mm -hmm. So Broadway was out. <laughs> and what led you to New York? I know that from an early age, you were training in jazz yep. and tap. And tell me more about kind the of that trajectory path. of training and what eventually brought you to New York? So I went to University of the Arts in Philadelphia on a full ride for jazz. And my plan was to go into musical theater mm. um, and do more commercial-based work or get into a company like Ballet Jazz de Montreal or something that had that kind of history. But I was at University of the Arts. I realized that my ballet training was nowhere near where I thought it needed to be in order to be more marketable. So I left the University of the Arts and I went to the Pennsylvania Academy of Ballet in Narberth, which was a, or is a strict Vaganova-based mm -hmm. school. And I tried to catch up in my ballet training. Mm -hmm. And at the same time that I was doing that, I was working full-time and waiting on tables and trying to make ends meet, as one does, life. the life. And I ended up burning out trying to freelance and do all these gigs and get mm -hmm. my ballet training back up and I'm waiting on tables, you know, and it, it my slowly my body was just like, this is not the right recipe. Mm -hmm. I decided to give up dancing and I was 21 at the time and I wasn't getting a lot of job offers. So that was hard. I just felt like I was not quite, I, I wasn't sure what my market was. And I moved to New York with my boyfriend at the time and was kind of like, I need to reset. And I did a lot of yoga. I worked in window displays and I spent like a year and a half doing some like deep soul searching about like what I wanted to be, where I wanted to go. I loved the arts. I loved academia. Um, I definitely missed school, but I was leaning more and more towards arts administration and I wasn't sure what that was going to look like. So I found the Columbia School of General Studies and I went up to the campus for a campus tour and I just remember walking around on the grounds of Columbia and I'm like, this is where I need to be. Like, I need, I need this environment. And the faculty was amazing and it was incredibly expensive, but that was probably my second very, very gutsy thing was that I applied and then I got in and I had to figure out <laughs> for how to get the, you know, loans yeah. to pay for it. Mm -hmm. I fell in love with Columbia. I, I. I felt like I found a community of artists that were both creative and intellectual that were using, you know, the right and left sides of their brains. And everyone was asking questions, digging deep, thinking differently. Um, no stone was left unturned mm -hmm. about any issue or topic. And the age range in the classes was vast. And they valued this like multi-generational kind of perspective in the classroom. So I studied there and it was there that I found modern dance and it was there that I found Paul Taylor. I mean, it's it speaks to this idea of calling. I feel like mm. so many artists feel called to the things that they do and have that intuition. Where, yeah. You know, you step onto College Walk on 116th Street and you feel like, this. I, yeah, I yeah. want to be here. I don't know what it means, but <laughs> this is where it is. You had mentioned just a moment earlier that you started taking modern dance yeah. and this is how you were introduced to Paul Taylor's work and style. What was that like for you? And when did you feel like you connected to his voice? 
I started taking classes at Barnard College, and Mary Cochran was the department chair at the time and a former Taylor alumna, incredible, incredible artist and teacher. And I started dancing more and more, and um, I was working with the Columbia Ballet Collaborative at the time, which had launched the same year that I was there. And I was choreographing a little bit and getting more, you know, just having a, a, a creative outlet. And so I was working with them, and then I was seeing a show at Dance Theater Workshop, as it was then called. Now it's New York Live Arts, um, where Bill T. Jones is. And uh, Mary Cochran, our board chair, was outside the performance, and the dance critic Mindy Aloff was there. Yeah. And um, Mindy Aloff had seen me dance something at Barnard, and she was like, I think, have you ever considered Paul Taylor? And Mary was smoking a cigarette. She goes, oh, my God, Paul would love you. You <laughs> should go and take class at the school. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I went to the Taylor School and took my first class in 2007, 2008. And I remember... I remember feeling like this was how I was meant to move, but I was scared by it because I didn't want. It's a one thing to really invest in one company, right. one choreographer. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're you. It's oh, yeah. it's tricky. Mm -hmm. um, and I was old enough to know that diversifying one's artistic portfolio was a wise thing to do. But I started to fall in love with the style. It was athletic. It had the theatricality that I loved in jazz. It had a way of using rhythm and musicality that was unique to tap. It also had the classical line and a sophistication that reminded me of ballet. And taking class with the dancers who were in the company, I just couldn't get over their presence. Like mm -hmm. everything was, everything was performed. Every tandu was a gesture or something. Mm -hmm. So I fell in love. And then my first audition was in, I think December, 2008. And I got to the end. There were like five or six of us after a very, very long day of auditioning. Paul said the time is not right, but try not to go anywhere. So I took that as a good sign. When it didn't happen, how did it make you feel? And why did you eventually audition again? I was so ecstatic that I made it to the end. Again, I felt it wasn't a question of if it was a question of when. Like I just, I felt this was it. I was trying to figure out what that next kind of that next stage was going to be in my life. But validation coming from someone like Paul Taylor, trying to go anywhere, certainly meant something. Yes. And then I was cast an afternoon of a fawn by Vaslav Nijinsky up at Barnard in 2009. It was a staged by Anne Hutchison Guest and Claudia Yeshki. And Paul was inspired by Nijinsky extensively. And doing fawn for me was very... It was, it, I felt like I found my spiritual mm. dance voice again mm -hmm. in doing Fawn. And I felt like I had something left to still give. And that's what made me decide not to get my master's. And I'm going to go back out there, you know, and I'm going to try to have a dance career one mm -hmm. last time. When you joined the company, your first performances were met with rave reviews. <laughs> in fact, you received a Clive Davis Dance Foundation Award nomination yeah. in your very first season. You basically hit the ground running. Mm -hmm. Can you recall those first years with the company and what it felt like the day-to-day -day of... It was so hard. <laughs> I had never... It was my first full-time dance job, and I was 28. So I was older, and I had never danced that hard for one 
company. Mm -hmm. I was so used to six projects happening simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So that was new. The other thing that was new was the volume of repertory that usually I may have had five or six dances that I was working on with different choreographers. Mm -hmm. Certainly nothing as extensive as like 18 or 20 dances and then 24 understudies. And like, it was, it was a whole mind moment of like, how do I, I have to learn choreography yesterday. And I would say the other learning curve was touring because there's no equivalent to being on the road extensively. Mm -hmm. You know, what it does to your body, what it does to like your relationships with friends and family. And then how that affects your dancing. And then how that affects your dancing. How you have to pace yourself, physical therapy, stamina, mental fortitude. It was a massive learning curve, but dancing iconic work like Esplanade, Promethean Fire, Company B, like dancing works that really transformed the landscape of dance and feeling like that I was performing these incredible works and how they were changing me was unlike anything I had experienced before. And yet it all felt home. Like Esplanade was never hard. It was exhausting, mm -hmm. but it it was always easy. Mm -hmm. It just made sense. And the Paul Taylor company is really known for very physical, very athletic. athletic. Lots of partnering. Yes. We tend to be brawny, quote unquote. <laughs> We're a very glute quad heavy <laughs> group of individuals. But a lot of the partnering is incredibly extensive. So I definitely had to do a lot more physical therapy and cross training in terms of weightlifting to be able to uh, support that. What was it like working with Paul Taylor himself? I'm sure everyone asks That's, you yeah. that question. What was he like? He was very quiet. He was a man of few words. And I found that when I was new in the company, I just kind of, I watched his relationship with the other dancers and I kind of just followed in line, so to speak. Well, literally and figuratively. He was really obsessed with stillness when I was in the company, that like you would let things read, that you needed... You needed something to offset the power and the athleticism. Like you needed the call, but it was always, there were those moments in the studio where you felt like time vanished and you got on the same page about making something. And those days were like, you were on the same frequency were just magical. And I eventually learned over the time of working with him that he would get nervous making dances or he'd get nervous if he got to him or he didn't know what to do. He had the idea like up to that moment. And then he was like, now what's next? Mm -hmm. And that the job or my job was to be the calming force so that if there was a frustration or the music wasn't working or something was off, like if you can, if you maintain your calmness, I felt like respect was earned mm -hmm. and it actually allowed him to get unstuck faster. And this thing about your responsibility to the space is to uplift the person's process at the front yeah. of the room. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it's hard to gain that perspective unless you have some maturity and experience yeah. under your belt. And it's the way that you approach the space that creates those magic moments. And every choreographer is different and choreographers are human. And some days there are good days and sometimes there are bad days. And it's not always a reflection on, you know, you as the artist. I also think it was interesting being with Paul towards the end of his life, because I think I got a sense, especially the last two or three years, that he wasn't tweaking or fine-tuning or he was observing. I think he was taking stock and reflecting on all of his work, not knowing when the end was going to be there, but there was a definite sense of transition that was coming. Were you aware of 
these thoughts and conversations? And how did the transition happen? So I knew that there were conversations in place about the succession plan for the institution beyond Paul's life. In 2014, on our 60th anniversary, he launched Paul Taylor American Modern Dance, and he opened up his company to the first time to choreographers to come in and bringing in important historical works that he felt held an important chapter within dance history. And it kind of shifted from a company to like a presenting institution. Because it would take audiences time to recognize that like now we're no longer a single choreographer company mm -hmm. or, you know, we're so much more than that. So that's that that started that momentum there. But I was under the impression that the transition of a successor would be something that would happen after his passing. And I certainly never thought it would happen. Well, because of that, I thought it wouldn't happen while he was still alive. And I certainly didn't think it was going to be me. <laughs> but that's what ended up happening. What do you think he saw in you, or maybe he articulated yeah. that to you, and when and how did you find out? So we had finished our Lincoln Center season in 2018, and I got a phone call that he wanted to have a meeting with me after the season. And ironically, I was working on, like, what is my next journey? Um, love dancing, grateful for the time, but, like, that arts administration bug was still mm -hmm. there. But I didn't tell him that at all. And I got called over to his apartment and I sat down and he said, it was a very short conversation. And was it odd to be called to his apartment? Yeah, it's incredibly or? odd. Okay. I thought I was being let go or that there was something made, that something major was mm -hmm. happening. I wouldn't just get a phone call like that. And he said that I've been giving this a lot of thought and I've decided that you're going to be the one to take over when I'm gone. I don't know what my face did, but I, but then the next thing he said was, yeah, you heard me correctly. He said, I want you to keep dancing, but I also want you out in the house so you can start seeing my work. I said, why me? And he said, because I trust you. And that really hit me hard because he did not flatter anybody. You know, a compliment from Paul came around once every two years or so. And to say that he trusted me having not really had like intimate conversations together was it, it really kind of took me back and i had also helped launch our young patrons group taylor next a couple of years before but i don't know if he knew that i was helping work mm -hmm. with our development team here to get our young patrons group back i don't know if it was because of my love of gesture you know that i i focused in on those moments that were really special to him in a way that felt authentic but i think all of that played into it yeah. in some way. I mean, if you think about it, for so many years, as you say, he, he was observing the room. He you learned a lot. You. <laughs> well, I, I, oh, yeah. I will say, like, the dancers listening in. Mm -hmm. um, you, when you're in the front of the room, you learn a lot about a person's integrity, character, how they overcome, you know, struggles. You see them when they're having difficult times. You see them when things are great. You see how they help each other. You really learn a lot from just sitting back and watching. Mm -hmm. So he selected you, mm -hmm. and then you walk out of it. <laughs> what happened yeah, He did give me time to think it over, but he didn't ask me. He told me, this is what's happening. I felt like this is what I'm here to do. That sounds, or it could sound pretentious, but it, it really was like, this was my love of the art form, his repertory, the magic of theater, 
it pulled in the love of academia. And I was planning on going to business school to try to find this place where I could do both. So it felt oddly perfect. Then it was released to the world in the summer of 2018. I started July 1, 2018, and he died August 29th. It was very fast. Wow. I remember seeing the announcement and then thinking, wow, 35 years old, taking on such a historic institution that's so linked to a single person's yeah. vision and voice. When you started, what were the challenges that you expected? The challenges that I expected were, how do you take an institution from founder and how do you affect change and at what pace so that everyone is on board, marketing, branding, commissioning, international touring, education. It was like a big like macro look at what are our strengths, what are our weaknesses. That was relatively easy to go through and see where I thought we were at. What I didn't expect is the amount of time that it can take to actually really implement vision and have the financial support and the emotional support from not just people who are a part of a foundation, like the board and the staff and dancers, but also like from the market, it takes time to rebrand. Yep. And I also knew that because a lot of the dancers that I danced with in the company were older and were waiting to be there when Paul passed away, that there was also going to be a turnover in the company as part of that transition. So um, diversifying the company became incredibly important to me. The choreographers that were being commissioned I knew that was on the horizon. I was looking forward to kind of building the company based on my values, not expecting the global pandemic to mm. begin a year plus later. Years later. Yeah. Oh, and the dancers that you did hire, what are the qualities that you saw in them? I'm asking for our audiences, but also um, yeah. for my students. <laughs> <Hey>. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, having watched a lot of auditions now, obviously I'm looking for a good solid understanding of technique and power um, and ability to pick up things quickly. But I really look for tells. That's what I call them. They're little tells in the audition room. And it's how they look at other people. Are they polite? When they mess up. How a person messes up is the biggest tell. I think, do they laugh? Do they commit? to the degree that everyone else looks wrong, mm -hmm. even though they're the ones that are doing the wrong choreography. Um, do they get frustrated and walk off? It reveals a very vulnerable moment in a person. And that's important because if you're jet lagged and at 10,000 feet and the restaurant's closed and you have to do a show and you can't get caffeine <laughs> for whatever reason, mm -hmm. your default becomes so important yeah. that the collective has a group of people who are like, we got this. There's a quote a while ago about um, Paul didn't hire dancers, he hired people. And I like to have 16 different people on stage, height, sizes, experiences, backgrounds. I think it creates a much wider perspective of humanity and I think Paul's work. So I'm looking for that as well. For you, in your dance experiences and what you're seeing, when a dancer is performing, what makes a magic moment? When I think of magic moments, it's they're so undeniably authentic in the moment that you see beyond choreography and something happens where you just see a soul existing and it's through movement, but there's no artifice. And 
sometimes it's not always them doing the right choreography, but it's so authentic and feels so human. The role of an artistic director seems quite glamorous <laughs> from the outside. <laughs> you spend time in the studio, you're shaping and coaching, you select and commission works and you tour around the world. What are the other aspects of your job that people don't see? I think the other aspects of my job is uh, it's a lot of psychology mm. and I think it's group dynamics and group management and that is true of staff and board and dancers and patrons at different levels and students and I think it's having a vision being flexible change is subject to change <laughs> as <laughs> as as we say here it requires having to make difficult decisions at times but trying to give artists the latitude to be human. Um, I think the biggest, the two biggest surprises for me becoming artistic director, one was how lonely it is, mm -hmm. especially being part of such a tight knit community where you're all, you're living together, you're going through everything together, you're on mm -hmm. stage together. The loneliness of leadership actually was kind of, took me back definitely. It happened so quickly. It happened so quickly. And the second thing is I think the macro view is very unique as a dancer, I was always focused on the next show, my notes, mm -hmm. what is this casting? And it was always in the immediate future. And as a leader, you're three, four, five years out. Like I'm working on commissions for 2025 right now. Like mm -hmm. you have to have a completely different worldview. So it's time is different mm -hmm. as a leader. Yeah. It's this sense of long vision. Yeah. It's a massive, massive ecosystem. So it requires a very holistic, I think, sensitivity to how everything works together. What makes you nervous? Speaking in public. Um, <laughs> what makes me nervous, I get nervous. I don't know if I get nervous. I get excited for when it's everyone's first time or someone's debut. Like I want to call it nerves because nerves makes me think like it's more like negative, but like I definitely get like excited, anxious energy. Last question. I'm always drawn to and really admire your up personality. Oh, you like thank someone you. that is always like eyes wide open, was ready to talk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are the character strengths that you see in yourself? I think because of my stutter, I listen more than most and I see a lot more than people realize. Mm -hmm. So I'm very like sensitive and kind of introspective. But the other thing, I really, really love our art form. Mm -hmm. I really believe it can change lives and i work towards that well you're doing a fantastic well job. thank you Th thank you for talking to me i appreciate I it love <laughs> all, that, all that you're doing and supporting you so thank you so much thank for you I today hope everyone enjoyed the conversation i hope you enjoyed this episode of moving moments if you like what you heard please tell your friends about it spread the word be sure to follow the show, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up with future episodes, follow us on Instagram at Moving Moments Podcast and visit us at artfulnarrativesmedia.com. 